Diversion Audio. Hi, I'm Natalie Emmanuel. From Ramsay in Fast and Furious to Missandei in Game of Thrones, I've loved playing roles of women whose resourcefulness, intelligence, and inner strength are pushed to the limit. And I've been inspired by women who withstood the phenomenal pressures of being a wartime leader. The history books too often will have us believe that the stories of leaders in times of war are stories of men, until now. In this episode, we go back to the grasslands of Mongolia, two centuries after Genghis Khan's riders spread across Asia to conquer a continent. By the year 1460, the old Mongol Empire had broken into pieces, and it took a resourceful woman to rebuild the legacy of the Great Khan. I'm proud to present War Queens, a podcast about powerful women leaders throughout the centuries and around the world. We are here because for the first time for many years, British sovereign territory has been invaded by a foreign power. We will continue to do everything possible to avoid an armed conflict. And the situation is a, a grave one. We are driven by necessity to prepare to defend what was just gained, our freedom and our very being. We're here with my favourite daughter-father history team, Emily and John Jordan, to talk about another extraordinary leader. Emily, many people haven't heard of Mondohai. What drew you to this princess from the Chorus tribe? Mandohai lived in this really cinematic time. The grasslands and mountains of the Mongolian steppes, the Great Wall of China to the south, there were riders on horseback, and the vast Gobi Desert all bring epic proportions to her story. She lived in this time of warlords and empires, and I think that if there was ever a movie that should be made about any of our war queens, it would definitely have to be Mandohai of the Mongols. Yeah, but they made the movie, right? They made what Mulan. Movie? No, that's the wrong side of the Great Wall of China, actually. She, so she's um, Chinese in Mulan. Yes, okay. Mulan is Chinese. See, I never, uh, you're, I made your mom take you to that movie, so I never saw it. So. <laughs> of All course. right. So Mandohai, um, she's uh, back in the Mongol kingdom. So uh, let's hear about her. As, as Leonard Skinner once said, play it pretty for Atlanta. <laughs> oh my gosh. Well, who do you think of when I say the word Mongol? Uh, Genghis Khan. Exactly. Or Genghis Khan, depending. Yeah. Uh, Genghis Khan was the one who really formed and created the Great Mongolian Empire. But by the time Manduhai was around in the early 1400s, it was made up of several tribes that shared the steppes and plains that they called the Eternal Blue Sky. At this point, they were more fractured and weak than when Genghis Khan ruled them. Over time, uh, different tribes would kind of be at conflict with each other, and it had pretty much weakened the kingdom. At the time, a Turkic warlord named Beg Arslan came to power over the majority of Mongolia, and he knew he had to appoint a Khan or a king in this sense. So, Emily, when you're talking about uh, Turkic warlords, we're really talking about those guys who were 
kind of southwest of where we think of Mongolia today, but there are a lot of different horse uh, armies and nomads that were sort of spread out in that area. Exactly. Beg Arslan needed a khan or king to rule over the Borjin province. He chose a man named Mandul. Beg Arslan made Mandul marry his daughter, a woman who was famously ugly. Her name actually meant large nose. Uh, we're not here to woman bash at all, but... Um, well, but but that in fairness, back in, in Mongolian times in the 1400s, having an enormous schnoz was not exactly a sign of beauty then. I mean, they they had different conceptions of beauty, didn't they? Exactly. And, and the features they valued were a rounded face with very small nose, eyes, mouth features. Mm-hmm. The only reason we bring up her ugliness in this sense is that Mandul wanted to take a junior wife, one who was hopefully a bit prettier than his senior wife. He found that wife in a young Choros girl with a name that meant ascending or rising who enamored him. And that was Manduhai. Exactly. She was known to be very beautiful and just absolutely encapsulated uh, everything Mandul wanted in a wife. Mandul took on Manduhai as his Katuner queen and she gave him a daughter. Because Manduhai had given him a daughter, he still needed an heir. So he looked to his nephew, Bayan Monke, who actually did have the blood of Genghis Khan in his veins, which was very important to the people of Mongolia at the time. Bayan Monke had actually escaped a murder attempt as a baby, placed by a previous Taishi, which is a major warlord of the Turkic Mongol tribes. So the Khan adopted his nephew as his son, essentially. He gave him silk robes and a golden belt and called him the Golden Prince, who would kind of lead Mongolia into their next golden age. That sounds kind of familiar. Uh, It seems like there's a biblical story there about a guy who gets a multicolored coat. (laughs) Exactly. Okay. So he kind of wanted this boy to be the symbol of the next golden empire, and and he prophesied that he would... uh, call on his great ancestor to lead the next generations. Unfortunately for the Golden Prince, a warrior chief named Ismail wanted the Borjin province for himself, and he decided that the best way to get it was just to go around gossiping terribly about the Golden Prince. So it's a high school kind of tactic here. Yes, but terribly awkward as well. Um, Ismail went around saying that Bayan Monke, the Golden Prince, was hooking up with Mandul's senior wife, the famously ugly one. So we got right now an episode of The Real Housewives of Outer Mongolia. <laughs> exactly. And Ismail went to Bayan Monke and said, oh, by the way, your uncle knows that you've done this and he's going to kill you any minute. You really should leave. And it works. Well, he leaves, and then that everybody knows he must be guilty. It really was a clever tactic by Ismail. Bayon Monke eventually leaves, running into the Gobi Desert. He brings along his wife and young child, leaves them for dead, and on the run he gets found by some criminals and essentially mugged and murdered in the desert for his clothes. Basically a give-us-your-clothes, and he, I guess he must have bad-mouthed them. Exactly. Eventually, Mandul, the Khan, dies. At this point, his senior wife, probably disgraced by the rumors of cheating, isn't really in the picture. And that leaves Manduhai in a lineage crisis. She was his junior wife. She probably never expected to be in charge of such a great, large group of people. And a lot of people were looking to her for guidance as to who would come along next. 
Well, so she's got to come up with some way to legitimate herself. She's, you said she's the junior wife. Does she have an heir at this point? No, at this point, the prince, uh, the golden prince who had left to the desert was the only one left with Genghis Khan blood in his veins. Okay, so now she's got to figure out both how do I legitimize myself and then what's the path forward for our Boragin clan? Exactly. So Manuha is 23 years old. That's how old I am right now. And, and I think about, that's a lot of choices. I still sometimes struggle with like, oh, I wonder, should I go to a house or apartment yet? That's the biggest thing I struggle with. She's 23 and struggling with, how do I keep this lineage alive? How do I serve my people? She knew a dangerous game was essentially about to be played over her hand in marriage. Manuhai goes to the shrine of the first great queen to kind of pray, to try to figure things out, try to figure out what she should do. She had to look at her options. To the west, she had the Oirit people. To the south, the Taishi, which commanded the Silk Road, and they were getting more powerful day by day. To the east was the Chinese Ming Dynasty, kind of like the ones from Mulan you were talking about. Okay. All of these were pretty deadly threats to her kingdom, a kingdom that was already crumbling over the decades. So option number one, she had a very charismatic top general. He was well-connected, he had a great battle record, and he could have brought the support of the Eastern and Central clans. The only issue was he had no royal or Genghis Khan's blood in his veins. And that was a problem to her people. They were, they deeply respected the bloodline of Genghis Khan and they needed a leader they could rally around. Well, again, we're talking about a way that she can legitimate herself. She can't really do it through giving birth to the heir She's not a member of the, the right bloodline. So she's got to work either religion or blood to get the people on board. So how does she do this? Well, she has to look at her other two options as well. Option number two is Ismail of the Oirat tribe at this point. Ismail had been the one sending that gossip campaign around that got the boy prince uh, kind of run out of town. And obviously, she probably knew he couldn't be well-trusted. He essentially said, give me the throne, sweetheart, and I'll send you off to a nice oasis. You can sip sweet wines and, and enjoy the rest of your life in peace. This is an all-inclusive package? Exactly. All right. Good deal. Exactly. Doesn't even have to pay for her drinks. Yeah. He said, go screw off and I'll take care of this. For a young Choros girl who came into power through marriage, she did not grow up with tales of her great empire, of her legacy, and of all the power she would gain. That, I I think, probably would have to be a pretty enticing option for her. But she didn't want to turn her back on her people. It's essentially a good bribe to get her out of the way to let Ismail take over another chunk of empire. Exactly. Option number three was the Ming Dynasty. Mulan's she, people. Exactly. <laughs> The Chinese were happy to end the Mongols. They had been a thorn in the side of the Chinese for a very long time, invading across the border on their horses, and they were happy to end it at any chance they got. But handing it over to the Chinese would pretty much mean she would be paraded around as a barbarian oddity for the rest of her life, while her people struggled under Chinese oppression. Maybe the Chinese emperor liked the whole exotic thing, the forbidden fruit. <laughs> Maybe. Well... 
Nonetheless, she emerges from her tent with a decision. She comes out wearing her ceremonial robes and a very tall hat, maybe like one to two feet tall with bright green feathers at the top. You know, what I read in one place is that that Mongol custom of having the tall hats was connected to those tall hats that you see in like Europe with the uh, the women who have the, you know, the pointy hats in the fairy tales. Oh, so, wow. Wow. A little bit of fashion trivia there. Is it the princess cone hats we would wear at the Renaissance yeah, Fair? Yeah, exactly. The ones where we hired the horse to uh, and, and tried to tape the uh, the unicorn. And then uh, it fell off, horrifying off. Yeah, exactly. the whole birthday party. Yeah. Great. Okay. Ruined the party. <laughs> well, back to the story. Nonetheless, she emerges from the tent with her robes and her tall hat throws fermented horse's milk in the air and performs her ritual to let the people know what she has decided. But much to the people's surprise, a young boy emerges from the crowd as she's calling out to her ancestors to show her the way, show her who is the next great leader of Mongolia. This young little boy emerges from the crowd and toddles towards her. This little boy would play a big part in the Mongol kingdom's fate. After the break, we'll tell you who he was. Now, Emily, when you left us before the break, Manduhai was engineering some drama and political theater to legitimize her rule. Lots of women have used political theater. Remember, Cleopatra f- comes out of a big leather sack and pops into Julius Caesar's room. Uh, we've got Margaret Thatcher sitting on the top of a tank. So what's going on with Mandahai to convince her people that she's found the right path for them? The little boy who emerges from the crowd isn't just some random little boy who happened to be there. It was a sickly five-year-old who was actually the son of the golden prince Bayon Monke. So this is the guy who got run out of town by the whispering campaign from Ismail way back when? Exactly. Got it. So if you rewind a little bit, you'll remember when the golden prince was in the desert, he left his wife and unborn child at the time for dead. Luckily, the child was still able to be born and was rescued by a peasant woman. When Manduhai learned of the boy's existence, she had him taken to a family's home and raised there until he was old enough to potentially help her out in a moment just like this. The boy had been raised on the Mongolian steppes where cold winds and rains could make a wet diaper a death trap, essentially. He was very malnourished, very small. He had an arched spine. But she had him wear tall boots, probably propped up a couple few inches, kind of like when you take your kid to Six Flags, and had him toddle out onto this field where she's performing this ritual to show her people, oh, this is clandestine, this is in the stars, and we must make him our king. The reason she did this was she knew that an election was coming up. At the time, the Mongolians were pretty open to elections as long as they were by the proper leaders. That put her at risk for not having any power or potentially someone coming in who did not have her country's best interests at heart. She knew she had to act quickly to solidify her claims to the throne. 
When the young boy emerged from the crowd, she called out saying, Oh, our prayers have been answered. We have this young boy with the blood of Genghis Khan in his veins, and he will lead us into the next great age. She claimed that this was an omen from the great goddess and named him Dion Khan, meaning king of the whole. She did this in hopes that it would rally people to bring Mongolia to unity, to its next great age, where they could all work together to make the country stronger. They began their reign together in 1470, the year of the tiger. She was his regent, and he was her son, who would eventually marry her when he got a little bit older. To solidify her claim until she would marry the young boy, she called out to the great goddess and said, Punish me if I ever marry again. I would never forsake my people. And she vowed the oath of a soldier, proclaiming, If she ever turned her back on her people, the goddess should tear her apart from shoulder to thigh. That's like a theological pinky swear at this point. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Pretty violent, though. She made sure to keep close ties with that suitor general we talked about earlier, the one with the good connections and the best interests of the people at heart, but no Genghis Khan blood. She wanted to make sure that she could trust him, so she made some contracts saying that perhaps if the boy ever died, he would become king then. And she made a good call. Normally, that's a tricky situation because... If he's next in line, that might put the young boy at risk for a premature death, a.k.a. murder. So the top general is potentially going to be the regent for the young Khan in the event of Manduhai's death. Seems like she's trusting him to a pretty high degree there. She did, and she would prove to be right. He would never betray her in the future. He also proved to be an impressive military strategist. He was really good at calculating the economic, political, and geographic variables. Katuns at the time, or the queens, which would be Manduhai in this case, were known as the community leaders. They would work beside the people in generals to help organize and manage the people as they moved. Manduhai made a three-step plan for her reign. One, she needed to pacify the Western tribes. Two, she needed to make peaceful negotiations with China. And three, she had to take out Ismail and Beg Arslan in the southwest in order to gain control of the Silk Road. Now, the Silk Road at this time was one of those great economic arteries of history. You know, we hear about like Marco Polo and other guys talking about it, but it's basically the caravan roads that run from China over to the Mediterranean and from there to Europe. So it was a pretty big deal if you're controlling that part of the world. You wouldn't think it because it's in the middle of a desert, but if you could slap a tourniquet on the Silk Road, you could really make bank. Definitely. She chose a province west of the Zavkan Mountains as her center of operations. It had great pastures, water sources, and that would help sustain her cavalry-based campaign. She definitely wanted to look at the geography of the region to support her operations. This is also just north of the oases that supported the Silk Road, so it would give her plenty of access in case she did need to put that tourniquet on it. She took the advice of her best general, and she sent ox carts with food and supplies ahead to use as checkpoints for the foot infantry as well. She knew she needed to rally her people even more, so she took Dayan Khan as her figurehead. She actually had to prop up this little boy on the horse by making a harness that would hold him on there over long rides. Now, the sources we're getting this from, I mean, there aren't a ton of sources still existing now, are there? 
No, there's definitely not many. I mean, I think we've got the Altan Tobchi, mm -hmm. which is sort of their chronicle of the Mongol kings around that time. But, uh, and, and if maybe a little bit from the Chinese, but just not a whole lot of other records that are contemporaneous. So what we're hearing, I, as I recall, is is basically the way the chronicler of the Altan Tobchi uh, believed that this played out. And he was writing, obviously, after the events. But that's the closest thing we've got. Exactly. And the Mongols, as you may imagine, were largely nomadic people, meaning they weren't keeping large libraries with records of what was going on. So we definitely have to look to some of these very few sources for a source of what happened. Mm -hmm. So Manduhai begins to prepare for war to solve those three main objectives we talked about. War with the Mongols meant more of their trademark scraps and skirmishes than all-out war on a battlefield. But either way, they steadily gained ground, along with the tactics of her top general. One account that we have was of her charging into battle alongside her people, and her helmet falls to the ground. One of the enemy clansmen actually comes up and takes off his own helmet and gives it to her as a sign of just such great respect to her and her prowess on the battlefield and her dedication to her people. You know, that kind of gets into one of my pet peeves about movies. You notice how, like, the credited actors, they all charge into battle without helmets because you got to recognize them and see their facial expressions and see Russell Crowe going, ah, and, you know, all that. But uh, if you were to jump into a real battle without a helmet, that's not, that, that's suboptimal, isn't it? No, you're not coming home exactly. it's in a bag. So, okay, so the, we've got the story that the enemy actually, the chivalrous guy, I guess he's sort of like the, the Frenchman who became enamored with Katerina Sforza, he gives her his helmet. It didn't do him any favors, though. She still annihilated her enemies and even set some fun rules for when she left. So once she had taken over these lands south of her encampment, she made her new rules uh, saying, there's a new sheriff in town. So first, no one is allowed to have a hat taller than two finger lengths, which is still pretty tall, I feel like. But Yeah, it, but not by her, her fashion standards. Exactly. It's odd that she's laying down kind of a fashion rule as rule number one. Well, it was definitely kind of a demeaning thing to them. The taller your hat usually meant the higher up you were, and she wanted to make sure they knew their place. Okay. She said that all must sit in the presence of a Khan, so I'm assuming everyone had to just sit around on the floor when uh, Dion Khan entered the room. Kind of a relaxed thing, yeah. She said that no buildings were allowed to be called a palace. Manduai also said that no one was allowed to use knives to eat their meat, although that could have been a poor translation more concerning security of the royals at the time. Well, I don't know. I mean, it depends on how tough the meat is. So, you know, I try to cook steaks, you know, nice and tender, but, you know, sometimes you need a knife. Yeah, I mean, I really hate it when my helmet falls off during battle. But Munduhai was a scrappy leader who won the battle and got to make the rules. And she wasn't just a warlord. After the break, we'll talk about how Munduhai enlarged her kingdom using all the tools at a queen's disposal. Diplomacy, economics, and of course, a very good horse army.
right, Emily, you left us with Manduhai running through the battlefield, proving her credentials as a battlefield captain, not just as a pretty face. She manages to win a victory and starts setting down some new rules. So where does she go from there? Well, all of those victories would actually gain her an amazing reputation. The people of the Oiret tribes actually pledged their loyalty to her out of just so much fear and respect for her, essentially. Mm-hmm. And that would mean the Mongols and the Oirets were finally united under the Borjean banner, which was a really big deal. She was finally bringing together these disjointed parts of the country, like she said she would when she named the young boy Dayan Khan, King of the Whole. Unfortunately, it would gain her less respect from China, who was worried about her conquests spilling over past their Great Wall. They actually embargoed Mongolia. So now we're talking like a Chinese trade war, like circa 1480s? Exactly. Mongolia had few cards to play when it came to a trade war. Unfortunately, the Mongolian steppes were devoid of most resources, and they really relied on trade with China and other territories in order to sustain themselves. But they had one very important playing card, the horses. When you think of the Mongolians, most people think of men charging into battle on horses. That was their really big thing. And they decided that they would embargo China right back. So no more My Little Ponies go off to China. Exactly. And soon a decent horse in China cost an absolute fortune. And she won the trade war. They had to back off from their embargo. I mean, they didn't pay for uh, horses and ducats at this time. And what kind of stuff were they using to pay for horses? It would be trades like uh, for silk. So one horse cost maybe one bolt of fine silk or maybe eight of coarse silk, things like that. So their stock market was on a barter economy. So the price of horses started going through the roof as soon as Mongolia cuts off its supply to China. Yes, and that was unsustainable for China. So they backed off and it was a win for Mandohai. Yeah, I mean, you got to have horses for your cavalry because the Chinese use those. We, you saw Mulan, right? Did she ride <laughs> yes. horses there? <laughs> she did. She Were has they Mongolian? Horse. They might have been. Were they expensive? Did they cost like a lot of silk? <laughs> I would say probably at the time if they because they were at war with the Mongols. Okay. Well. <laughs> well, China would definitely use those horses from Mongolia, and they actually took care of Beg Arslan's forces. He and his border raiders had been provoking China for a very long time, and they knew they finally had to take care of him. Manduhai knew that if she waited long enough, let Beg Arslan and his forces provoke China enough, they would completely take out her enemy for her. And she would prove to be right. In 1472, they took a large chunk of Beg Arslan's army with them and decisively turned on the defensive. The Chinese said, we will stay out of you. Please stay out of us. We're going to reinforce the Great Wall of China. We'll stick to our side. You stick to yours. So the, and so when we go tour the Great Wall of China, and I've never been to it, but when uh, people see it, this was partly built so that Mandohai and her friends would stay out of China. Exactly. She would also make key alliances with the surrounding tribes called the Three Guards. And Dion, now a teenager, was ready to take a more substantial role in being a leader. They knew they had to still take out Beg Arslan. While his forces were gone, he was still an issue that could always come back to bite them. Dion and Manduhai worked together and they overwhelmed their enemy with a surprise attack. 
Begarson fled in a panic. He actually switched helmets with a lieutenant in order to escape and throw off the assassins. Cheap tactic. (laughs) Exactly, good coward's tactic. Dion and his men eventually caught up with him and killed him in a nearby camp. And according to the legends, salt grew where Beg Arslan was killed. Ismail, watching the fall of his ally, knew that he was outnumbered and he actually went into hiding. Manduhai, knowing the power of loose ends once again, knew that he had to be tracked down and killed, which is exactly what she did. Eventually, she sends people to go out and find him, and Ismail's gone. All right, got rid of another problem. Exactly, and I love this part of the story because when we began this story, there's this young Choros girl from Mongolia up against these huge warlords and leaders who spent their whole lives trying to take power from her, and she has finally rid herself of her three great enemies, and she's standing tall. Well, it takes a while, but she has her own military. She triangulates with China, even though there's some trade problems there. And then she manages to uh, kind of align herself with the right people diplomatically. So she's got diplomacy, economics, and military stuff that she's the complete package for. She definitely is. And she took the next few decades of her life ruling alongside Dayan Khan, who she actually ended up marrying like she said she would. They would govern over the region of Siberia's Lake Baikal all the way to Korea's Yellow River. With China's new emperor and the strong diplomacy between them, she was able to help trade flourish between the two nations. They were really a power couple, and they ended up having eight children. And remember, they weren't related. I had to take a step back and be like, wait, isn't she his son? No, no. no. She, he's he's like Genghis Khan's uh, bloodline, and she's Choros, right? Exactly. So it's okay. There's no ooh factor. They actually also had three sets of twins. Um, I, have, I have a feeling that has something to do with Genghis Khan's very potent uh, bloodline. Yeah, I th- think I read on the internet that like— 10% of all people in Mongolia are genetically related to Genghis Khan. And yeah. then like maybe 1% of the entire world is related to Genghis Khan. He got around. He did. He's a playa. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, it's actually uh, 0.5% of all men are related to Genghis Khan is the statistic. So. Okay. All right. Yeah. So little brother Austin, probably not, but it's possible. We don't know. They put all... <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> He's shaking his head. <laughs> uh, Dion Khan and Manduhai put all of their children in charge of the different territories across Mongolia. And that kind of ends her great reign. She hands it over to her descendants. Well, and we know that Genghis Khan, when he did that, it kind of fell apart pretty quickly. But Mongolia, as a political unit, sort of kept its cohesiveness up until basically the 20th century and then uh, became more of a, you know, incorporated by China and Soviet Union. Definitely. She got the unique opportunity to grow old in a world that she had brought to a great age of peace and prosperity. She passes away at 1509 at 60 years old and was forever after that revered as Manduhai the Wise. Well, when you get a moniker like the wise or the great, you know that you're kind of going out on a high note, and it sounded like she did. Well, I remember when we were researching this book, you kind of fell in love with Manduhai. I don't know if it was the tall hats or kind of what it was about her, 
But just looking at, at Manduhai in the context of all these other women that we've studied, what kind of points do you give her and how do you rate her? I'd say I'd give her around an eight. She gets points for her time in charging into battle alongside her men. There's there's many great stories of her charging into battle, falling off her horse and getting right back on it. And I think that's beautiful. Now, and of course, some of these might be apocryphal, but some of them might be true. We definitely know that she went into battle. And I think in one one case, she went into battle pregnant. So true. you get extra, extra credit points if you're like Katerina Sforza or Manduhai the Wise and you go into battle preggers. Exactly. I give her lots of points because she came from humble beginnings and really stood by her people even when it was difficult. She definitely was wise in, you know, putting the young boy on retainer just in case she needed uh, someone to legitimize her claim. And she had a great track record. So I, I would give her high marks. Well, Emily gives Manduhai a high score for battle courage for moving up from humble beginnings and caring for her people. Manduhai was the complete package of a war queen in 15th century Asia. What I like about her is that she was so far-sighted, her nickname, The Wise, seems appropriate. We hope you enjoyed this episode of War Queens. That's our show for today. Listen to every episode of War Queens for more stories of women who brought their nations through the fires of war. questions for us about war queens if you're curious about something you heard on the show we'd love to hear from you please email us at warqueens at diversionaudio.com again that's warqueens at diversionaudio.com we'll try to answer your questions on a future episode find us on twitter facebook and instagram at warqueens podcast war queens is a production of diversion audio your hosts are John Jordan, Emily Jordan, and I'm Natalie Emmanuel. The show is written by John and Emily Jordan based on their book, The War Queens. Our supervising producer and sound designer is Mark Francis. With production assistance from Antonio Enriquez. Editorial direction from Jacob Bronstein and Scott Waxman. Our head of marketing is Erica Farmer. Our theme music is by Tyler Cash. Executive producers, Jacob Bronstein, Mark Francis, and Scott Waxman for Diversion Audio. Diversion Audio.